welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap between what you believe and what you actually experience. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thanks so much for listening. On this edition of Restoring the Soul, Michael welcomes back our good friend, Andy Kolber, to the podcast. They'll be discussing what it means to understand attunement and the companion Try Softer resources that are now available, including the Try Softer Guided Journey, a soulful companion to healing. Andy Kolber is a licensed professional counselor, writer, and speaker from Castle Rock, Colorado, who specializes in trauma and body-centered therapies. She's passionate about the integration of faith and psychology and has written for Relevant, CT Women, and Encourage. As a survivor of trauma, Andy brings what she has learned personally around the work of change, the power of redemption, and the beauty of experiencing God in our pain. So without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. This is the one, the only, the inimitable, the super-fragicagilistic, expialidocious, amazing, Andy Kolber, M-A-L-P-C. Andy, welcome back <laughs> to your appearance at Restoring the Soul. Yes, it's so good to be here, and that was quite an introduction. Um, and, and you deserve it, because... My engineer, Brian, in Cincinnati, emailed me this yesterday. We This is the 199th episode, and if we do two episodes here, back-to-back, you will be the 200th. And out of 200 episodes, you are the most downloaded, most listened-to podcast in all of Restoring the Soul-dom. Wow. That is, is an honor. Yeah, and the fun part is that you're here live in our studio uh, on the fourth floor of the West Jefferson Building, overlooking Eeny Meeny Sushi, uh, and there's actually people that make uh, pilgrimages from far away to Lakewood to not see our office, but to see Eeny Meeny Sushi to, if it really exists. I can't recommend whether or not you'll get food poisoning, but uh, it is delicious. <laughs> That's amazing. So I digress. But I'm really, really, really happy you're here, and this almost always happens, but as you were coming in and settling in, and as Ginny was getting you a cup of tea, the conversation started, and I was wishing that we had recorded it, because it's just so, so good. Um, But you have a new project out, and it's related to your now best-selling book, Try Softer, and it's called The Try Softer Guided Journey, a soulful companion to healing. I love it. And um, it's about, what, 80 pages, 90, oh, 107 pages mm-hmm. of workbook, interactive, really unpacking the material in your book. So talk a little bit about what led to you writing a guidebook. I know publishers are like, okay, let's create more materials, but people really have been helped. Hmm. Thank you so much. Um Yeah. So with the guided journey, you know, one of the themes that I've noticed with folks from TriSofter is people would tell me, oh, I've, I've read TriSofter now three times. Or they, they would tell me, oh, I've gone back. Or they'd say, um, you know, can you, are there any other resources around this? And that was a theme that I've been hearing for a while. 
And so when I had the opportunity to talk with my publisher about it, and and as I thought about it, one of the things I talk about in the guided journey is that I'm actually not a fan of workbooks. Which is funny since I just wrote one. But what the reason I decided to do it and I wanted to do it in a really specific way. I wanted to make it very, um, give people a ton of choice about how they engage it. And that's, that's really why I don't always love workbooks because sometimes in my experience, it feels a little bit like too rigid. Like here's exactly how you do it. And cognitive. And cognitive, yes. And so one of the things that I um, really aimed to do in the guided journey is make it very experiential. And so like there's five sections, but each section has like, you know, a body centered, like it's, it's a good amount of space dedicated just to the body centered work. And then there's, you know, there's one that's really just around sort of a creativity, right brained, um, activity, which the other thing I say is that I'm not necessarily an artist and it's okay if you're not either, you know, like that this is, this is really about just tapping into like, because I don't want it just to be cognitive. Um, and then there are some more classically like journaling questions. Um, it's also designed so that it can be used in a, in a group. Um, so not all of it is for the group work, but that was one thing from Trisofter, a ton of people were using it in groups, which is awesome. But I wanted to make it even, even more accessible. And at the end of the guided journey, one of the things I put in is um, some recommendations for how folks can run a sort of a trauma informed type group. And these are truly just, these are just recommendations. Um, cause, because I think so much of the work of Trisofter is really about attunement. And that's the problem when we say, hey, here's your checklist. Right. It doesn't require that attunement, which takes uh, awareness, attentiveness, uh, some stillness, slowing down life, and then ultimately paying attention. Um, but will you talk about what attunement is? Because if someone's a, a new listener or if they haven't read Trisofter, they might think that's like an old radio dial trying to attune to 98.5. Yes, totally. Um, so when I say attunement, what I mean is it's an awareness and an attendance to your present experience. And so sometimes that really is just awareness and sometimes there that requires action. So if I'm attuned to my body and I notice that I'm hungry, then continuing in the attunement would be feeding myself, (laughs) you know, or if I'm attuned to what's going on in my body and I notice that my breathing is getting, you know, really fast, that attunement might then lead me to settle my body, to do something to help. Instead of being reactive, reflexive, and allowing those sensations or experiences to just overwhelm us and kind of take us down the, the rushing river. Yep. Or... To suppress them. Uh-huh. So that's usually, you know, I think in our culture, those are usually the two things. It's right. either we suppress it, you know, in, in Trace After, I use that language of like white knuckling and um, it's just sort of like, just get through it. Um, and, and when we can only do that for so long before it will end up usually flooding. Right. Right. So back to the guidebook, uh, it's very much practice-based whether it's practices around attunement or the journaling, that you're not just reading the book or even the workbook and going, wow, 
those are three nice ideas and I hope they stick, but a way to actually play it out and to do that in a communal context or individually. Yes. Yep. And I know that for not everybody's in a place where they are ready to do it in a communal context. They don't, may not have access to a community that can do it. And I think that that, I really tried to design it in a way where both, both are okay. Both can work. Um, and it maybe is even something where you do it on your own first and then you see where that goes. So I really emphasize that choice. I'm so excited for the the group communal part because so many people say, where can I go to be around other people that think this way, that have a trauma-informed lens, that are on this journey, and I often don't know and often rely upon therapists to do groups or things like that. And as we know, not just because of COVID, but those are few and far between for a lot of different reasons. But uh, now I can say you have the book or you've read the book and now here's the workbook and go be brave and find one other person to do this with or do it, uh, you know, for your, your church Bible study or study group or something like that. So TriSofter has been out two years, right? You just had the, the two-year anniversary. And or it's coming up in January. Coming up years. on two yep. years. Okay. Mm-hmm. Congratulations on that. That is no small thing. And I don't want to flatter or overstate this, but the book has been very, very successful um, in a way that because I endorsed it, uh, I knew it would be mostly because of my endorsement. But you know, <laughs> that's the first thing people tune t- tune to. No, I kid, I kid. Um, the book has been very successful, and it's deeply resonated with people. Uh, when people come to do an intensive here, we keep cases of your book mm-hmm. on hand, and in most cases, we give people a copy of the book because they say, "What else can I read?" Mm-hmm. And instead of giving them a three hundred page Bessel van der Kolk book that you need a Greek dictionary to, you know, interpret. That's a great book, but um, we give them your book because it's your narrative. It's uh, science research-based. It's clinically full of integrity, but it's really your proven journey. Um, So what do you think it is that has most resonated with readers for why people are gravitating to this book and and saying, give me more, give me more. Mm. Well, first, thank you so much. Um, Thanks for your support. I mean, you really have long before the book came out, you know, been part of a support team for me. So I just thank you for that. So, so happy to, to be a part of it. Yeah. And I mean, I think the first thing I just would say is like, I have been just profoundly humbled. Like I, it makes me it makes me emotional because i when you create something you don't know right it's it isn't it's sort of an act of faith to do any kind of creative work but i think creative work where you're literally talking about a story of your own trauma and trusting that being called to do that is valuable is i mean and it's valuable whether or not other people react to it it's it is my story and whether this book would have not sold anything doesn't change the validity of my story but it's very vulnerable to do this work i mean um i remember the day before it came out and i just i was joking around with my husband i was like hey you want to go rate my childhood trauma on amazon (laughs) (laughs) 
I know what that's like, actually. <laughs> yeah. And so I think I just I just start with that to say, like, this is not this is this work that a part of me was like, really, am I doing this? <laughs> am I really doing this? And and I when I got to a point where I was like, yes, I'm really doing it and I'm invested. And that's why I, I mean, I just care about it so much, not just because it's my story, but because I think there's um these strands of truth that extend to all of us as humans. And so to your question, I think that what there's a couple of things that I think has why I believe it's resonated. One is that um, it's a real. I mean, this is the this is the truth. This is the, the life I've lived. It's um, really based in, the, in my integrity of just the reality that even as someone who is trained um, in, in various therapeutic modalities and done all this stuff, like it has been messy and complicated. It has not been easy. It has been the work of my life to learn how to be gentle with myself. I mean, gosh, that seems like it would be easy, right? And how many degrees do you need? How many, how many trainings? How many, all these things, but that's not the thing. Right? right. It's been the experiential attunement. And I think that has resonated with people because when they hear that, they're like, oh, oh, you? <laughs> mm. Oh, oh, you? Because you, you, your life has been and you look pretty together. You have a beautiful family and, and an education and you were a successful athlete in college. And, um, you know, you look like, wow, her life's working. And at many levels it was, but that internal aspect, there was turmoil there and things didn't line up. And whether it's faith belief or a belief of what life should be like, there was this gap between that belief and what you really experienced. Absolutely. And that's not just real, but it's it's really messy. Yes, it's really messy. And it's, you know, I think it's even part of what kept me from doing the work earlier. Because on the outside, I, I received a ton of praise for how I seemed, whereas internally, I felt isolated and alone and afraid and sometimes, you know, in dissociation or sometimes in super high, like my body experiencing a lot of pain because I had to armor up so consistently that my whole back and neck was locked up, you know. And so so I think I think just the the authenticity um, of that, I, I believe that has resonated with folks. I think, I think also from a faith lens, it has. I think it has been important for folks to hear about learning, like my journey to learning that I am beloved. And I am certainly not the only person who uses that phrase. I mean, Henri now and, you know, I, his work has been so formative for me around that. I remember I, it was probably, I was in seminary, you know, probably, gosh, 14 years ago when I first read um, some of his work. And it just, it, it stuck with me in a way that a lot of things don't always stick. And that theme has been, such a consistent part of the feedback of what people, you know, especially for folks who follow Jesus, um, they don't always see themselves as beloved of God. Right. I should feel bad about myself. I should see myself as essentially bad, as unworthy, as, you know, 
barely, barely, barely worthy of God's love, uh, but only because of the blood of Jesus, then God can sprinkle a little white powdered sugar on top of the turd, as, as someone <laughs> says. <laughs> you know, th- and, and that's what a lot of theology is, wor- worm theology. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't I don't think that that's ultimately biblical or representative of God's heart, but that um, this idea of authenticity, but as you talk about Henry Nouwen, that kind of deep-lived tenderness that spoke to your heart that you were probably very hungry for at that point and may or may not have known that that existed somewhere in an author. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that at that time in my life, the work had begun, like the, the foundation was being laid. Um, I, you know, I was in a relationship with my, with my now husband and I was beginning to know what it felt like to really feel safe with someone in my own body, like those types of things. And though God had always been a resource to me, I mean, I, I have, I don't have a time that I don't remember being aware of God. It's always been just a part of my experience, but I don't have a time when trauma hasn't been a part hmm. of my experience either. Right. And so I really needed the safety of the, the lived experience with a person. Um, that is the bridge that allowed me to begin to really not just read about a concept, but to inhabit. You know, one of the things I say in, in the guided journey is inhabiting our belovedness. Mm. And for me, like, it's like this place where it's like, I want, I'm making my home there. Like, that's where I live. <laughs> um, or at least I try, you know, mm. and, and so, yeah, I was hungry for that. And I was, and it was the seed, like the, the soil. There, there was good soil there for that be, to begin to take root. And, and that has been such a foundational part of, yeah, attachment healing for me. And so much of Trisofter, even though I'm not always explicitly talking about it, it's attachment work. This is this internal experience of having that safe attachment internally, both with ourselves, but also with others, also with God. It's that experience of, of beginning to repair, repair that narrative. Which we could argue from the Christian story or the Christian narrative that there was a rupture that wasn't initiated by God in the story in Genesis 3. Uh, what we commonly call the fall, and I like to call the turn. And the, in that, in that turn, the rupture was from the, the, the man and the woman that, that were there. Uh, and then the story is that God, love with a capital L, pursues, 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 and offers that safety mm-hmm. that you're referring to. And so much of religion and so much of faith is I have to somehow create the conditions for safety mm-hmm. to assure that I'm good enough, that I'm following the rules, uh, that I have the right doctrine or belief, then I'll be okay, and then I can be loved, then I can be the beloved. Mm-hmm. Um, but this whole approach is suggesting something different. And um, I want to go back to, because you said ourselves, God, and others, attunement is not just uh, parents coming in attuning to an infant when they're crying. But it sounds like you're saying that attunement is at three levels, uh, maybe at least three levels. Uh, we have to be attuned to ourselves. 
and then we can be attuned to others. And as you described, and this was my story, it was through attunement to others and having others attuned to me and being open to learn how to receive love, to be vulnerable. It's through that that a new attachment with God developed. It wasn't by reading Bible verses and trying to muster up faith, but it was through literally learning how to be and then learning how to be loved, and then learning how to be loved by God and to let something overflow from the inside out. But is that accurate with what you talk about in your book, that the attunement is not just kind of one-directional, but it's three-way? I believe that it is. And I think, you know, I, I know, I talk about this pretty much everywhere I go. But for me, when Jesus says, you know, love your neighbor as yourselves, to me, I think that's at least part of, you know, I mean, it starts with love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your mind. And and so it's like, there's that, right? There's like, there's the connection there. There's the attunement there. And then there's this, you know, directive to love your neighbor as yourselves. And and I think what's interesting, Ben, it's like, and all the law and prophets are, you know, like are encapsulated in these two things, right? right? Like, holy moly, if you look at that through an attachment lens, if you take it out of the realm of legalism and take it into the realm of love, well, what does that mean? And I think it speaks to the reality of what you're talking about. Um, but what's beautiful is I think there's a reciprocation. There's a mutuality in all of this. And that mutuality is it's almost like there's these different doorways in. And sometimes, I mean, really we're designed from our earliest days to be loved and be attuned by our caregivers. And that creates the internal framework that then we internalize to begin to say, well, who am I in the world? And what am I worthy of? And, and am I, you know, and I think that sets us up then to see that God loves us. It gives us this framework. And so, but what's interesting is that things go off script. Right. We don't always get that love from our caregivers or there are huge ruptures in how we come to see ourselves because of trauma. There are ruptures in how we see God because of trauma and abuse or being taught things that are not true or real about who God is. But any, it's almost like there's a doorway in through all of it. Like it could be through experiencing God that we come to feel ourselves, which then allows us to be with others. It could be with others that we then see ourselves that then we are able to be with God. And so I think to go back to your question, it, I think it absolutely is on all three levels at least. And I think the mutuality piece, the reciprocity is, is beautiful because I think that's, you know, when you think about it, like, why is this not just an individual practice? It's right. because we're designed right. to be interdependent, to right. flow with each other. When you talk about mutuality, it makes me think of the Trinity, you know, that there's this, uh, the perichoresis, the idea that there's an outpouring, but not a loss. And then there's just a mutual infilling and a mutual infilling and a mutual infilling that, that the three persons of God can't not give, but in the giving, they're not diminished. They're actually, uh, increased or, or true to who they are. And I love the idea that it can come through all three aspects of uh, self, God, and others, because my experience has been that when people do that work, it's it's particular to what they need. 
So it allows for, okay, just like someone may need cognitive information about God, like, no, God is love. Uh, here's that Bible verse. Um, and they grew up in a, a cult or they didn't know anything about God. But then another person may come along and they may know that and uh, they know it cognitively, but experientially because their body reacts and they get a knot in their stomach every time they hear that mm-hmm. or they resist it because of wounds in the past, then they need something completely different. They're going to need that person to mirror them, to see them, to validate them. And that's often the role of a therapist, right? Mm-hmm. Which is what we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's so beautiful. And why I love this work, because I find there are just like these little nuggets of like intersection, you know, that um, they just, they begin to stand out and you can't not see um, how it then becomes all connected. And, and so, you know, not that we need to always be pushing for that or looking at it, but um, you know, I think it all comes back to this idea of that we can be secure in in who we are and who God has made us to be and that it's valuable and necessary, especially if you have not been raised in places or have had experiences of deep rupture um, to really invest in what is required to experience that safety, to, to attune to the needs in order to repair. And it may start out initially as reparative, like I have this problem, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm dysregulated, I'm anxious, I'm depressed, I have PTSD, I have an addiction, compulsion, angry issues in my relationships. So people begin the work to get rid of the bad stuff, and then it becomes a different kind of journey, uh, a journey of becoming. And so for you, as we were talking earlier, you know, with pandemic and the busyness of life and the success of your book – that's required something different of you, mm. and it can bring up old stuff, but it's it's really the journey forward. Who am I going to be mm. today, and am I going to preach to myself? Mm. Which I really appreciated you saying that, that, um, that the success of the book and all that that puts on you as a, as a kind of uh, blessed weight, that that requires you even more, more than ever to try softer and to have to live this way for the sake of becoming. Mm, Yes. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I mean, I have felt the invitation to level up (laughs) for sure in the last couple of years. And um, it's such a, you know, I think a lot about a lot of this work like a dance. And when I think of just like the healing work required, um, because the reality is, is that I am a survivor of complex trauma. That is that is a part of my story, even as I've, you know, done so much healing work, all these different things. And in this last two years of, of the pandemic, it's really been, you, you know, this, it's like the volume intensity got turned up. And so while I've had a lot of practices and things that supported me for a long time, as, um, you know, as the book has done well, as my platform has grown, as, as I am aware of just the deep needs in the world, I have had to be aware that some of my patterns that helped me survive my childhood, 
uh, at times begin to pop up like, ooh, maybe if I just keep everybody else happy, <laughs> then I'll be okay. Respond to every email, <laughs> every text, every Twitter direct message, um, every speaking invitation. Yeah, like if, if you know, I don't want to make anybody else, I don't want anybody to ever be disappointed in me. Like I don't want, um, there, there's those, there's that feeling, right? And, and I, one of the things I remind myself of is that for me in my childhood, um, part of the reason that's so ingrained is because that truly was, it, it was, it truly allowed me to survive by being overly aware of the needs of others. Mm. And so there's just a validity there because I think sometimes some of these patterns get shamed. And one of the ways that I honor myself is to do my best not to shame the way that I'm responding, but to say, okay, there is a part of me that is feeling maybe a threat, maybe feeling like something bad will happen if I am, if I don't do or respond to this in a certain way. Mm. And so when I can stay connected to my full self, when I can, you know, have at least one foot in my window of tolerance and, um, I can attend, I can attune to the parts of myself that feel like, what's going to happen, Andy? Like, what will happen if they're disappointed in me, you know? Mm. And to really honor, like, I get it. I get why you feel scared. And to almost, and that's where I get to have the opportunity to love on that young part of myself and to then from my adult self to say, but let me just tell you how things are now. Let me just tell you it's okay. Like it is safe for other people to not be happy all the time. It's okay. You know, and especially if keeping someone else happy causes me to have to harm myself. Right. It shouldn't be even sacrificial love is never at the expense of our own soul. Uh, it's not at the expense of diminishing us. Sacrificial love, whether it's martyrdom and, you know, burned at the pyre or uh, working an extra shift for someone, it may physically cost us and it might requires to rearrange our life, but we don't become less of ourselves That's good. as a result of that. Yeah. Um, so that idea of saying, okay, let me tell you about today. I'm grown up and here's what the situation is. I'm safe. There's kind of an asterisk there because in reality, there is a safety. Uh, you are grown up or the person reading your book or me, and yet there's embodied reactions, activation, um, you know, our heart rate is telling us, no, you're not safe. And you know that that person wrote you back and said, where's the manuscript? You know, so those those bumping up against the idea, it's true I'm safe, but it sure doesn't feel that way. Mm -hmm. um, so what do, you, what do you do with that? Yeah, this is a huge part of the work and why so often just cognitive thinking is not enough, you know? And I think that there's several things. Um, this is why, I mean, if anyone's heard me speak before, I mean, I talk about things like grounding all the time. And part of the reason I always talk about grounding is because it's one of the most basic things we can do to re it's like we're reorienting to the here and now, like, here's what's happening in this exact moment. Like this, my senses are informing the reality of the here and now. Um, and so part of that is really one of the keys there is that I'm orienting. I'm orienting to like, how do I know 
that even if someone, it's not that it's always comfortable that someone is unhappy or needs something or expects more. But when we talk about safety, it's that when I was a kid, I did not have the resources that I have as an adult, right? Like my actual survival, like my ability to get my needs met, to eat, to have a house, to have some connection to love and belonging were dependent as a child. right? And so as I'm orienting to the here and now, part of what I'm doing is rem- is like literally looking at you know, it can look a little bit different, but you know, I'm a 38 year old woman. Like, how can I, how can I know that now? You know, um, for me, the other part, well, not just for me, but in general, co-regulating with a person who is, has at least somewhat of a grounded nervous system. Let's talk about what co-regulation is. Yeah. So co-regulation is when you have it could be with another person, but it can actually happen in, in nature and it can really happen with God. Um, but it's this idea that it's a, it's more than one sort of nervous system, um, creating a greater capacity, um, to, um, allow for soothing, to allow for a down regulation. Because you need soothing to feel safe. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe not ultimately, like where if someone's holding you and your heart is racing and you're scared, you'd be safe. But generally speaking, the the fear, the scare, the sense of, oh, I'm not safe, when another person comes, the soothing is there. Yes. Yeah. And I think even that can look so different. And this is, again, why the attunement matters, because where one person might want to be held, the other person's like – just be in the same room with me. Right. You know, that person's like, actually, I need to run in place <laughs> so that my body can complete the action of feeling like I need to get away from this danger. Um, but can you just be with me? And that, you know, even in therapy, that's part of what we're doing. Right. You know, is we are, as therapists, we're being aware of our nervous system and st- trying to stay in our sort of window that like sort of connected to our full self so that we can leverage that. So that as our clients get to the point where they're starting to step outside of their window, they can explore those places of risk in a way that is safer for them because they have that tether to us. Right. And so co-regulation is huge. I mean, you know, again, this is where, like for me, I get outside a lot. Like if I can't co-regulate with another person, um, I love being outside because it is just from a sensory standpoint, it's so helpful. But there is also, you know, I think creation. I think there's, there's just a wisdom. There is something so important about the cycles of those things that are often uncreated. Well, you use the word grounding and outside is literally ground, right? Yes. So there are, there are, uh, people that do acupuncture and work with energy and that kind of thing, and that the earth uh, as an element has energy in it. And being aware of and planting your feet and being upon ground is very different from standing on the fourth floor of our building and having your feet on the carpet. It can provide grounding, but it's not the ground. And, you know, terra firma, whether it's dirt or a parking lot. There's something about that, that I have a base. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's just something about those embodied, you know, and and I, it's, it's the sensory piece. It's also like the bigness, the fullness of that. The earth can absorb the impact, the intensity in a way that maybe a drywall can't. 
Yeah. I like how you said that. So you said embodiment, and I want to wrap up this episode and have you back for another episode. But I just want to say for anyone who is uh, new to hearing Andy, new to her book, or whether you have read the book, make sure that you check out the Try Softer Guided Journey, A Soulful Companion. And um, also, we have three previous podcasts with Andy, and in one of those, she goes deep into embodiment, this idea of uh, our need to be attuned to our body and what's happening inside of our bodies. So thank you so much for this conversation, and we'll jump back in for the next one. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com. Thank you.